put it bluntly, if the enemy is calling to America, we really need to know what they're saying. And we need to know what they're thinking. And we need to know what, who they're talking to. It's uh, this is a different kind of struggle that we've ever faced before. It's essential that we understand the mentality of these killers. I came in with a healthy skepticism about uh, these programs. My team evaluated them. We scrubbed them thoroughly. We actually expanded some of the oversight, increased some of the safeguards. But my assessment and my team's assessment uh, was that they help us prevent terrorist attacks. Edward Snowden today did a Reddit-style Ask Me Anything with The Guardian newspaper, a live online chat with questions from journalists and the general public on Twitter. And remember when the head of the NSA on Wednesday told Congress that these methods of surveillance, in particular the PRISM program to monitor email communications, that that may have helped prevent dozens of terrorist attacks? Well, specifically one from 2009. DNA Clapper said that Section 702 collection was critical to the discovery and disruption of the plot to bomb the New York City subway system. Zazi case, is that correct? Um, that is correct. In fact, not just critical, it was the one that developed the lead on it. Well, Snowden says that's also not true. In his online chat, he wrote, quote, U.S. officials also provide misleading or directly false assertions about the value of these programs, as they did just recently with the Zazi case, which court documents clearly show, was not unveiled by PRISM. We're, we're going to have to make some choices uh, as a society. And by the way, with respect to my concerns about uh, privacy issues, I will leave this office at some point, sometime in the last next three and a half years. And uh, after that, I will be a private citizen. And I suspect that uh, on, on a list of people who might be targeted uh, you know, so that uh, somebody could read their emails or, or listen to their phone calls. I'd probably be pretty high on that list. But it's not as if I don't have a personal interest in making sure my privacy is protected. I want surveillance of these people. I want surveillance if we have to, and I don't care. I want, are you ready for this, folks? Are you ready? Oh, they're going to make it such a big deal. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? If that's okay. I want surveillance. And you know what? We've had it before and we'll have it again. Welcome to Right to be Secure. This is episode one, posted online March 11th, 2020. My name is Sam Richards. Find us on Twitter at RT4MN and head to RT4.MN for local Restore the Fourth stuff and RestoreTheFourth.com for the national branch of the Restore the Fourth movement. Our basic human right to privacy has been enumerated in the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Some seek to diminish this right, but working together, we will restore it. This is the podcast for the Minnesota chapter of the Restore the Fourth movement. My name is Cass, and I am joined by my good friends and fellow activists, Curtis and Sam. Sam, I what were the what were the questions you had for oh, yeah. like introducing ourselves more? Because I know I know we, we had like multiple hour long conversations in the last couple of recordings of this, and it was all like, just thoughts. And it was all just like us jabbering on, and I don't think like anybody would be able to recognize us from that. <laughs> they might. Um, so I came up with five pretty basic questions that you'd hear in like a first uh, syllabus. Oh yeah, right. icebreakers. Icebreakers. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's the time of year for icebreakers. So you can yeah. pick two of these, I figure, just for the sake of time. Um, what are some of your pet peeves? I came up with that one when I was driving. Um, <laughs> if everything in society were perfect, what would you want to do for your job? Uh, what was your best subject in school, or I guess favorite? Uh, your ideal vacation spot, and slash or who is your favorite historical person? So, I don't know, maybe Kurt go first? Yeah, I think my favorite historical person is, uh, is Hannah Arendt. Um, she had to flee the Nazis in Germany and ended up in uh, the United States where she became a professor of uh, 
political science or uh, political theory. Nice. And um, I always appreciated the fact that she was able to go very in-depth into concepts of like the origins of totalitarianism, nice. uh, but also talk about uh, society and politics in a methodology that's very history-focused, okay. where she can chronicle uh, different political changes throughout history. That's really um, interesting. What was, her name? what was her name again? Uh, Hannah Arendt. Okay. Um, she's got a book called On Revolution. That's, that's what it is. Good. Yeah. But uh, I just like her uh, ability to talk about these topics without getting uh, like partisan at all, it yeah. seems. like She doesn't seem to align with any um, particular like political movement that I can identify except for talking about the fact that there ought to be a very large increase in local control of political uh, decision-making. And uh, she also emphasizes like liberty and freedom quite a lot. Cool. Uh, and um, she has a respect for the American Revolution and the, the Bill of Rights. And uh, she definitely thinks that America did a pretty damn good job of getting a good foundation set that uh, hopefully can be built upon. Nice. Um, and then uh, as far as the other one, uh, I guess my best subject in school, I think, was uh, probably math. Hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I wasn't good at math, but I don't really utilize that very much. But Well, computers. Yeah, computers, I guess. But... Um, yeah, I, I kind of tend towards more uh, writing-based stuff than mathematical stuff. But I guess the the logic concepts that come with learning math um, are maybe evident in the policy-type mind that I have. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Now you know Kurt a little better. There you go. <laughs> uh, my name is Cass. My favorite, my favorite historical figure figure is probably Nikola Tesla and Mary Shelley. I love science fiction and I love scientists and it's like, you know, I can't do that stuff. Like I was like, you know, back to high school, I was always terrible in science classes and like I was it, I just don't have the right kind of mind for I get or or even like the patience for that kind of methodical um like research stuff, but I just love Frankenstein is probably my favorite my favorite book and I just love Mary Shelley so much her other works are like her other books are also really good and Nikola Tesla is like a mad scientist like embodied in a real person so that's just awesome his story is interesting too yeah like 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 on top like on top of everything else I feel like he embodies what it means to be an American too like an immigrant who came to this country and just like did amazing shit yeah um it got robbed <laughs> yeah <by> an industrialist <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true, too. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, what else? Ideal... Okay. Well, I think that was your two. Yeah, but I want to... Because, like, the other two can be combined into two. Like, if everything in society was perfect, what would my job be? I wouldn't have a job. I would spend all of my time in my ideal vacation spot. That's good. Which is up at the cabin. Um, <laughs> you broke my system. I did. Oh, I broke it. <laughs> Devil's advocated it. I love, I love spending time at the cabin. Like, if I could... If I could, I would. If society was perfect, and if I didn't have like time or money constraints, I would just spend all of my time up there reading books and like maybe once a month or so going to socialize with people. But other than that, I just spend my whole, spend my whole life up there, and that would be awesome. Well, hey, if Cass is going three, I'm gonna go backwards. Yeah, go, so go ahead. Address go this utopia thing. Um, <laughs> I'm an anti-utopian person. I don't think that society will ever be perfect, and that it's a bit of waste of time to think in those terms uh freedom is something that always needs to be pushed for and there's always new freedom horizons that need to be uh identified and and uh worked on and i think that the best part of life the utopia part of life is that there's fucking shit to work on yeah. if there's nothing to work on what are you doing? Then it's pretty. It'd be pretty fucking boring. I yeah, I mean, like my when I, whenever someone asks me this question and like the an, the answer to this question is always me. Pretty much, I would be all by myself because 
the only way that I can envision that kind of perfect society is if I'm the only one left. <laughs> oh, there you go. So apocalypse. Well, right. basically, I mean, that would be a utopia because I would be like the only one left, and society would be perfect because I would I would be the sole member of society. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um. So I'll just go off that the ones you guys said. And actually, I kind of I wrote that down the subject in school one kind of quick without thinking about it. But now that you guys brought it up, it's kind of tough to pick. But I would either have to go with astronomy because it was fascinating, or still is fascinating to me. And one, I can't remember if it was a quarter or a semester, I got 120% in that class. And the teacher let me go scuba diving at the pool (laughs) for like a trip thing that instead of like being class anymore. So that was great. Or I really, really, really liked my, uh, I think it was mostly 11th grade history class because it was mostly just like reading and writing papers. So like that taught me way more than just history. Like that was actually probably where I started like making good arguments based off of like historical fact and things. Um, so thank you, Mr. Darda, for that. And then uh, favorite historical person. That's also kind of tough. Um, I there's a lot of people in history that I really respect, but I think I have to go with MLK Jr. Um, especially if you look at his philosophy in regards to like. You know, you can't really have social justice without economic justice. Um, And then what was the other one? Oh, yeah, ideal, like, utopia. I think if everything was perfect, I'd probably do something (laughs) like Cass. But I would probably be a farmer or, like, a teacher. Um, Because, yeah, I like explaining things to people. And I think it'd be awesome to have a lot of land somewhere with pretty scenery. Uh, So, yeah. And pet peeves is bad driving. I'm throwing that one in. So, <laughs> it's gotten worse too. Your pet, the pe- people's driving, or your pet peeve? Maybe both. So it <laughs> seems like it's gotten exponentially worse. Uh, but now, hopefully, the audience knows a little bit more about us. And, and about the fact that we have a cat. Yeah. <laughs> email us uh, your answers to these questions, and uh, we'll post the email at some point. Yes, indeed. It used to be that there was a background default expectation that the stuff you did, it wasn't private in the sense, but it also wasn't going to be part added to a permanent record. Yeah, a dossier. Right. Yeah. And now, and now it's not. It's like uh, what did what did Edward Stone say? It's like it's not about it, it's not about whether or not you're on a list anymore. Everybody is on the list. Yep. Everybody's on the list, and, and now they're just. What, and now it's just about what your ranking is on the list. Yeah, and waiting for you to become either an activist that right. could threaten power or, like, I guess, an actual threat. Yeah, And, and that's not how the legal system was founded. It was supposed to be that you did something to warrant the government looking at you, and then they found evidence and built a case, brought it to a judge, and investigated further. Right, now they collect evidence, and then they try it, and then... Reverse engineer it. Yeah, there's um, I'm glad that you brought up the activist thing, too, because... There is this amazing speech that um, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald did after the Stone Revelation. It was like a TED, I think it was a TED Talk, where he talked about this whole this whole idea of, um, where, he, where he talked about this whole thing where people have, it's like, oh, if you're, not, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you have nothing to hide. Oh, right? yeah. That old, that old nugget that we keep having to deal with and <laughs> have these conversations with people. And, you know, people say some, people saying things like, I have nothing to hide, therefore I have nothing to fear, like, um... What did, what did you say? If you uh, you it's don't like, need the First Amendment because you have nothing to say, yeah, I forget. I forget what what, what happens know. when you do have something to say, right? And you wouldn't trade off that, right? But the thing is, it's not just that. It's just that when they think about how the government is only going to use this to catch bad guys, right? What people normally conceptualize of as bad guys is they think of people engaging in violent criminality, yep. or people who are um, or just criminals or terrorists. But what it really means to those in power is who threatens my power. Exactly. And it's like, it's not just about protests either. It's not just about protesters. It's what kind of information, you know, if you're, if you're someone who is in power, it is reasonable to think about what can I do to keep and maintain my power. Absolutely. And, Especially when it comes to police. And, and police and, and politicians and, corp- and, you know, corporations. They all have a vested interest in keeping and maintaining their power, and so they use these inform they use these information networks to help keep themselves in power. Yep. It's how they divide up communities. It's how they divide up market shares. It's how they make it's how they make money. 
Plus, everything, everything depends on a steady flow of information and the surveillance. It's not just surveillance state, it's surveillance capitalism. And yeah. plus, too, if you we're talking about dossiers and things, the point of building a dossier, like you said, with maintaining power is that you have blackmail on everyone that you can mm-hmm. call up. And I don't know anybody on the face of the earth, maybe except for, like, Mother Teresa... But I would argue no, even Mother she... Mother Teresa was a terrible person. She, she probably even has something to hide that she doesn't think the government should have in no, a like file. She, no, she well, legitimately was a terrible person, though. <laughs> it did come out after she died that she didn't believe in God for large... Really? Really? Yeah. Damn. And uh, I thought she was just a terrible... You know, she's a, a little bit of a hypocrite there, too. But, like, she also, like, <laughs> ran these... Um, she believed that uh, suffering was a way to heaven, and so, yeah. she, like, she, like, delivered... I forget. It's very I forget. puritanical. It's like she was, like a lot of the clinics that she opened up in India were just like total medical nightmares. Uh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> so not. A, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like no, the, <laughs> like the, uh, Christopher Hitchens, one of my one of my personal heroes, had a great um, like expose is talking about how Mother Teresa was just maybe she wasn't a terrible person, but like she did not have at all any sort of positive impact on, on on India or anything like that. Yeah. But um well Christopher's obviously biased, so I can oh, discredit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I can discredit <laughs> There you go. Said about it. Uh, um but yeah, I mean like I agree with you. Um it's not even necessarily like trying to find compromise, although I think that that might be part of it. It's also just like the more you know, the easier it is to sway, mm-hmm. the easier it is to um Divide, like when I say when I say like divide up communities, I mean it in a literal like Intel Pro nailing down exactly what demographic you're trying to target, mm. and then like dividing them up into chunks and like targeting your shit at yeah. them better. Yeah, if you understand messaging and, if but, you understand networks, you're able to isolate and identify who the influencers are of those networks. Yep, yep. And then you can crumble spend a lot less money and yeah. time and resources by exclusively going to that one individual or group of individuals and then you can influence the whole, that whole network and yep. that's not a conspiracy that's literally an fbi program that's cointel pro yep. that they we had the church committee hearings back i think in the 60s i don't think 60s? we can talk about that because it was discovered after someone broke into an fbi office <laughs> yeah and so we shouldn't be talking about right. <laughs> private documents it's national that's, security that's the fbi's business yeah it's not our business <laughs> i know that yeah, there's some sort of COINTELPRO thing that still exists today. Otherwise, what else would be the point of gathering all this information? You're not just going to sit on it and be like, sweet, fill up the file cabinets and never touch it. Yep. We have a particular obligation to examine the NSA in light of its tremendous potential for abuse. It has the capacity to monitor the private conversations of American citizens without the use of a bug or a tap. The interception of international communication signals sent through the air is the job of NSA, and thanks to modern technological developments, it does its job very well. The danger lies in the ability of the NSA to turn its awesome technology against domestic communications. 40-year-old video of the church committee's work. That was the chairman of the committee, Frank Church of Idaho, and immediately to his right is the then 39-year-old chief counsel to the committee, uh, Fritz Schwartz, who is our guest joining us throughout this series. He's uh, with us in New York, Elliot Maxwell here in Washington, D.C. Now, today, in the wake of 9-11, the NSA is something of a household word for anybody who follows the news and politics. Uh, but how well known was the agency in 1975, Mr. Schwartz? Well, hardly at all. The NSA, the joke was that NSA st- stood for no such agency. It was not meant to be discussed at all, and it wasn't generally. Um, it was to have the hearings on the NSA was one of the most hard-fought issues within the committee. I think it was a, a quite close vote, and again, not at all on partisan lines about whether we should or should not have a public hearing, and we decided to have a public hearing. I remember speaking to the general counsel of the NSA when we began getting information and indicating we needed to get more information. And he said to me, but the Constitution does not apply to the National Security Agency. That was an interesting idea that the Constitution didn't apply to a whole agency. 
I think I know what was in the back of his mind, that their work was meant to be mostly, was meant to be foreign. They were meant to be doing things overseas, largely. And my rejoinder to him was, of course the Constitution applies to the NSA when you're doing things that affect Americans and affect Americans within America. Uh, with respect to wholly domestic communications, uh, is there any statute that prohibits your interception thereof, or is it merely a matter of your internal executive branch directives? Uh, my understanding, uh, Mr. Schwartz, is that the, uh, at least, the National Security Council Intelligence Directive defines our activities as foreign communications, and that we have adopted a definition for foreign communications consistent with the Communications Act of 1934, and therefore I uh, I think that is the... Right, but you believe you're consistent with the statutes, but there isn't any statute that prohibits your interception of domestic communications. I believe that's correct. How to affirm the importance of the secret uh, security agencies, how to make sure they don't go beyond their, their writ, and how to ensure that the rights of Americans are protected in a world in which there's danger, and in, by agencies that are by necessity secret, but also because they're secret, are potentially dangerous to the rights of Americans and to the well-being of, of the United States. But as you, as you know, there are some fundamental questions about the balance between security and liberty that transcend just the FISA question. So what I would like to do is see if we can get a direct answer to the question about when the intel community needs to get a warrant, for example, when a lesser amount of evidence would do, and second, the circumstances when uh, no specific evidence is needed at uh, all. And the FISA law does not specify whether a warrant is required. So that's the reason that I'm asking the question, I asked it a I'd year like to ago. ask Director Mueller to, to help me with that question. And, and, and Mr. Director, I'm anxious to hear from Director Mueller, who I greatly respect, but I also need to hear from you with respect to the intelligence community. That's why I asked it a year ago. And I said, Senator Wyden, uh, in the case of the CIA and NSA, who were engaged in foreign intelligence collection, that's a practice they, they do not engage in. Director Mueller. Uh, uh, well, Senator, uh, uh, you're talking, uh, well, let me start by saying that there's no real distinction in uh, what we do between the criminal and the national security. If we require it in uh, in uh, criminal side, we require national security, and we treat them the same. There is no distinction between our intelligence cases uh, in terms of uh, uh, undertaking the activity you, uh, you uh, suggest uh, and our uh, criminal cases. That being said, in the wake of the Jones decision, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that is, um, uh, put some things in an area where we're waiting to see where the courts go. Quite obviously, they said if you were going to trespass to install a device, then that requires a warrant. The standard on that warrant is still up in the air. And consequently, to give you a more precise answer to a particular question on a particular monitoring, I would have to be more more factually based and then apply the law to that particular set of facts. Director Mueller, you have identified the exact reason why I'm trying to get an answer from Director Clapper, because there's no question we are going to watch what the courts do in the days ahead. The question is what will be the rights of Americans while that is still being fleshed out? And the fact is FISA does not specify whether a warrant is required. And I know I'm out of time for this round. I just want you to know, Director Clapper, respectfully, I will be asking this question of you, just like we did with respect to the legal documents for targeted killings, which we finally got after seven requests over a two-year period, until we get an answer, because I think Americans are entitled to a direct answer to that question. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, would you like Director Mueller to respond? I think, I, think, I think it would be helpful. Ma Madam Chair, I think the director did, and he gave a very thoughtful answer, which is that the courts are still 
wrestling with the various interpretations of it. I think that is a correct answer by direct, Director Mueller, but we still have the question remaining, what are the rights of Americans as of today while the courts are wrestling with this? And that is the matter we have not gotten an answer to. I thank you, and this for you, Director Clapper, again on the surveillance front, and I hope we can do this in just a yes or no answer, because I know Senator Feinstein wants to move on. Last summer, the NSA director was at a conference, and he was asked a question about the NSA surveillance of Americans. He replied, and I quote here, the story that we have millions or hundreds of millions of dossiers on people is completely false. The reason I'm asking the question is, having served on the committee now for a dozen years, I don't really know what a dossier is in this context. So what I wanted to see is if you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. There are cases where they could in inadvertently perhaps uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The computers are listening. That's the headline to a new article by The Intercept detailing how the National Security Agency, or NSA, is converting people's private phone conversations into searchable text. According to documents released by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, the agency can now automatically recognize spoken words by generating rough transcripts and phonetic representations that are easily stored and combed for information. The top secret documents show NSA analysts congratulated themselves on de developing what they call Google for Voice nearly a decade ago. It remains unclear how widely the spy agency uses its speech-to-text capabilities to transcribe and index U.S. citizens' verbal conversations. The documents suggest the NSA has frequently used the technology to intercept phone calls, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as Mexico, and to monitor international news. Well, for more, we go to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Dan Dan Frumkin, a staff reporter at The Intercept. His new piece is called The Computers Are Listening, How the NSA Converts Spoken Words into Searchable Text. He also just wrote an article headlined, Why the USA Freedom Act is Both Desperately Important and Laughably Pathetic. Dan, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about how um, voice is turned into text and the significance of this for the NSA and for the public. Well, I mean, the funny thing is that it's not at all surprising when you think about it. I mean, we talk to our apps these days. We, we dictate uh, into Google searches. So is it, you know, is it any surprise the NSA can do this and has been able to do this for a while? No, but, the, but it has never been disclosed before, and the NSA refuses to talk about it. And so because they, they don't acknowledge that they do it, uh, we can't have a public policy discussion about what the limits to it should be, what the significance of it is. And the significance is, is enormous. Uh, voice has historically been considered ephemeral and unsearchable. And, and sure, if they, you know, if they had somebody uh, around to listen to it, uh, you might be spied on if you were making international phone calls or what have you. But now uh, they can listen to everything uh, all at once, thanks to these uh, computers. And they can search through for whatever they might be looking for. Anytime you're going to contest power, the thing you're contesting will focus on you. Like yep. It comes back to, you know, whoever wants to regulate it, they're going to start using it against them. Yeah, well, we could transition into the FBI thing until we sure. from that. Yeah. yeah they're freaking spying on us, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Of course, like everything spooks do, it's completely muddied and unclear. <laughs> and you can't use FOIA to figure it out. You can get bits and pieces, but yeah. yeah. So, so for background, uh, I believe this individual is uh, uh, working with the Cato Institute, and uh, he's a former CIA analyst that did some FOIA work, um, simply looking into whether uh, public policy organizations, uh, if the FBI has data on them, and uh, he got responses from at least 20-some-odd organizations, uh, data request responses from the FBI saying, we will neither confirm nor deny the existence of data that's been obtained 
on these organizations. And they did deny it for some other organizations, though. Like, we got nothing on this one. Yes. Yeah. And so Restore the Fourth was one of the organizations that was uh, given this Glomar response, which simply means what I just said, is that we can't confirm or deny whether there's data that's been obtained on this organization. Do <laughs> <laughs> what I think of that. Yeah. Um, I, I do. I do kind of want to play devil's advocate for the FBI here. Um, you're you're coming on the podcast. We got our pro FBI guy. <laughs> yeah, on that's the case. Me. The FBI. We, yeah, yeah. The what FBI, do they have on you? Okay. I mean, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, the FBI does have a mandate to investigate criminal organizations, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes sense for them to have a thing in place where they don't have to tell the if the criminal if a criminal organization makes a request to the FBI, tell, tell me what data you have on us, the FBI should not disclose the fact that they're doing an investigation on that organization. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, you know, in that, you know, like the Data Practices Act in Minnesota, if, you know, you, you can request data about, your, you can request any and all data about yourself unless it's part of an ongoing investigation. Right. And, like, there's a reason that that exemption exists. And, like, I feel like it should be okay for the FBI to say we're con- we're performing an investigation we can't like they need to be they need to be able to they, they need to be able to lie in that instance or, or like because otherwise they're going to otherwise every single criminal organization is just going to be constantly bombarding you know oh the FBI is in, okay now we know the FBI is investigating us there i i know what you're saying and yeah. like you you don't want the people that are charged with protecting you to have to disclose their means and methods right. but in this case if you're talking about first amendment groups that shouldn't be in the same umbrella as criminal organizations yeah, or counterintelligence criminal groups. organizations can can and have posed as for as like that's that's, yeah, but that's a that's, common that's, response to a data request is saying there's currently an ongoing investigation mm-hmm. yeah it's not it's, you, I'm like i'm not saying say, it's not i'm not yeah. saying it's not abused i am saying that no, like, I'm saying the, the response that the we Glomar got, response is BS. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. <laughs> like the if they're good, what they should what they should do with the like if hypothetically restore the fourth was actually under investigation, like if for some reason our treasurer is laundering money, I don't think he is. <laughs> um, then, you know, I would just want and and we the organization was currently under investigation. I would hope the FBI would just lie and say we don't have any information. Well, here's the other thing too. Why don't they just say that there's an investigation? Because then you, you just tipped off a criminal organization that they're under investigation. So what? But I mean, I feel like that's... I mean, I guess that is a fair point. <laughs> if, okay, if the FBI is getting involved in investigating a group that they consider to be a criminal enterprise, yeah. it can only be, like, certain amount of crimes, right? Because otherwise, wouldn't it be, like, the state investigators or, like, a county attorney filing charges against certain individuals? Mm -hmm. You can't just lump an entire First Amendment group into, say, this whole organization could be involved in some counterintelligence thing. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what makes me think that this is acknowledgement of something similar to COINTELPRO. Yeah. And that's not even that far of a stretch. Because, like, if you've seen Michael Moore's uh, movie Fahrenheit 9-11... The Bush administration and all the in- intelligence agencies and stuff were putting people in these anti-war meetings. <laughs> and so that's probably what this is. They consider it a threat to some of their assets because we're talking about anti-surveillance efforts. Yeah. The FBI does a shitload of domestic surveillance. They have the same they have access to the tools that the NSA and the CIA use and it's basically just one big mass, you know, yeah, and and the FBI has a really has a long and sorted history of um, abusing everybody's rights for no real, but for for like no legit sh- shitty BS reasons, like po- political oh, reasons. Yeah, for political reasons, and for like, oh, this guy is. Um, I forget the stories about like J. Edgar Hoover. I think that was yeah. yeah. He was Just, like using using the FBI as his own personal. Yeah, uh, private investigators or people even like. <laughs> that's uh, when I think Kurt shared it. But when this thing came out, that's exactly what I was thinking too. It's like it's not even any different than before, except for the fact that they have more surveillance capabilities now. Yeah. So naturally, on their hit list, it's going to be people that want to rein in their surveillance power. Yeah, and it's it's tricky. And I guess I guess I do want to I do want to say that I feel there does 
the FBI does need to be in a position where they where they can investigate crimes. Like that's their job. Yeah. And we do need a federal and like we we should have a federal organization whose job it is to investigate federal crimes. They should be investigating white collar crimes a lot more than First Amendment. Oh yeah, groups. for sure. Like, um, but I do. I, I I feel like I should just point out that you do need to weigh an organization's ability to fulfill its core mission with, um, you know, basic civil liberties, and that's mm-hmm. that's always the tricky that's always the tricky proposition whenever you're doing any kind of civil liberties fight is weighing a state's interest to do the function of the state and ensure mutual prosperity and all the stuff a state is supposed to do with individual civil liberties. And in this particular instance, I feel it's trickier than just, oh, they should have, you know, it's just trickier than they should just tell us when we're being investigated. (laughs) Well, they don't, hmm. Uh, Okay, if it's an investigation that's ongoing, at some point it has to wrap up and there has to either be charges filed. I feel like sunset sunset provisions on when they're allowed to and when they're allowed to would probably be my would probably let, let me name some of the other groups so thank you kids in need of defense <laughs> the transgender law center the reason foundation wow the campaign for liberty <laughs> restore the fourth and about 20 others yeah the Cato like Institute. domestic terrorists to me no these, <laughs> there's no fucking way that all of these groups are all somehow being investigated by the fbi for legitimate uh, reasons. Yeah, it's, I mean, I this is definitely a violation of First Amendment uh, rights right now, and the FBI needs to be held to account. They right need to explain what the fuck they're doing. And you can't and, hold the government to account if what they're doing is completely secret and they'll never tell you about it. Yeah, there's literally no true. capability for oversight there. Yeah, and it provides us with no standing to go to the government, or I mean, it provides us with less standing to go into court. And say, yo, court, the FBI's doing this and that, like spying on us, and all we're trying to do is petition like, for a redress of yeah, grievances. All we're trying to do is to make it so the Constitution of the United States is upheld, yeah. yep. and these people aren't upholding it, and they're not willing to admit the fact that they're violating the First Amendment. And and then you're going to get tossed out of court because they're going to say we don't have any standing. Exactly. Well, and that, that has that. happened. Yeah, that, that has happened. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about if it's been on related to people that got Glomar responses or not. I think it was NSA surveillance. Yeah. Because they're like, well, we can't go over the list well, of abuses that you're alleging because it's all secret activity. This is Chris Hedges and Noam Chomsky yeah. had a lawsuit related to this. Yeah. Yep. And now it's is, precedent, unfortunately. Yeah. Which isn't which is BS. Yeah. But I like um, I think I mentioned this earlier. I think it is entirely within the realm of possibility that you know they're only actually investigating one of these one of these groups, and then because they didn't want to have like because they didn't want to reveal the fact that they're investigating this one group, they just lumped up a whole bunch of similar organizations together and then did Glomar on all of them in order to try and not reveal the fact. Oops, sorry, and not reveal the fact that they're investigating the one agent, the one. And that's wrong, right? Yeah, that's totally wrong. Because then what you're doing is you're... Like, the whole idea of Glomar is messed up to begin with because it leads to situations like this. (laughs) Where you have... They won't even lie. They won't even say yes or no. They'll say, eh? Yeah. It's the most Kafka-esque part of government (laughs) that can be conceived of. It's like, oh, you're on trial. Uh, What for? Uh, We can't tell you what you're charged with. Right. That's Kafka's The Trial. Yeah. In a nutshell. And the guy fucking goes insane because he doesn't know what he's being accused of or how to defend himself. And uh, he ends up in the end of the book just, like, conceding and being like, well, I must be guilty. And that's a psychological response that people get when this sort of bullshit happens. But Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take it. You know, I'm going to publicly say that this is bullshit and the FBI needs to explain what the fuck they're doing here. Right. Yeah. Um, leading to we we recently had a meeting which we'll get into with the uh, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, and the ACLU for mm-hmm. a coalition. And in that, um, the head of CARE talked about how FBI agents are posing as Minneapolis police officials and going using human intelligence. Well, they are yeah, they are. Or, yeah, yeah. Right. They're 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 performing dual roles, but they're not disclosing the fact that they're performing these dual roles in their Thank capacity you. as 
police officers and freaking FBI agents. Yeah. And it's like you think you're de- you you know community you think you're dealing with a local cop and trying to participate in like the sort of antiquated notion of community policing, um, but really you're talking to a freaking FBI agent and like. I don't know if this applies, but it's a federal offense to lie to a, to an FBI agent. Like you can get thrown in federal prison for that. And they do that to people too. Right. They use it as they use it as a um, a pressure like a pressure like to get people to you know. Yeah. I think talk. that's why Paul Manafort was in jail, wasn't it? One of the reasons because he I lied to federal investigators. Yeah, like, I mean that's one. That's that's one. That's and like that doesn't apply to freaking your local beat cops. So yeah. I mean, like it fundamentally changes how you interact with the person, and they're not telling you about it. Yeah. Like, I've always wondered, like, if I just happen to meet a random FBI agent and I just say... You probably name. have. Yeah, well, like, and I don't know that he's an FBI agent and I just say, hey, my name's Carl. Yeah. <laughs> Am I going to get thrown in jail? I don't know. I feel like that's such a messed up law. But um, but the, it is... What, t- talk a little bit more about how... Well, the reason I brought that up was yeah. because... Um, well, the side note to this whole thing, there's uh, on The Intercept there, uh, a couple of years ago, the domestic like intelligence operations guide or something to that effect for the yeah. FBI was leaked. Oh, and yeah, you can you yeah. can read the whole thing and it's like a how-to for FBI agents in the like field. Like how to integrate into mosques and get like... Yeah, and also how you are allowed to um, recruit confidential informants that have a ton of legal leeway so they can commit crimes, they can like entrap people... And all that shit is just A-OK as long as it leads to, like, a quote-unquote successful arrest or whatever, or investigation. And so, that, that again, that's exactly like COINTELPRO 2.0. And now we know that, like, I think Jelani from CARE again... He's the executive director of CARE Minnesota. Yeah. He, um, he told us that there are something like 100 or so reports of people like these FBI slash Minneapolis police people doing door knocks like per year. And so if you think about those are the people that have the ability and knowledge to report that run in to care as an organization, you got to think the numbers of that are maybe like 10 times higher. And of course, like we talked about before, they're targeting a marginalized community. So it goes Muslims and immigrants, right? Yeah. Somali Somali people. We have the biggest Somali population in the country here. And so, yeah, it's, it's, they're running roughshod over how people perceive these quote-unquote legitimate investigations and, you know, the Bill of Rights is supposed to work in the country. Yeah, and, it, and it's so frustrating to... The fact that this is being targeted at immigrants who don't necessarily have, like, the greatest understanding of, like, the history of mm-hmm. how our country was founded. It's, like, founded on the very ideas of liberty and freedom founded by immigrants who believed in the ideas of liberty and freedom. Religious freedom. Yeah, exactly. And, like, they come to this... And it, and it feels like they're, you know, you're moving from a third world country to another third world country. Yeah. With so, a way more capable police and intelligence force. Oh, yeah. Um, but what else was I going to say? Um, yeah, we threw a lot out there. <laughs> well, I would just uh, say that this is a good reason to maybe um, emphasize that it's important to talk to your neighbors <laughs> and yeah. not be stuck in bubbles because... Uh, it seems like, you know, it's easy to get in a bubble and not realize that there's a ton of people in your community that the FBI is fucking with. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know that that sort of activity is happening because if it's happening to a marginalized group right now and you're not part of it, it very well could be that you could become part of a marginalized group in the future. Mm-hmm. That might not be immigrants for us three, but, you know, we could be you know become a part of a marginalized community quite easily yeah uh just depending on how you know political shifting happens exactly and it doesn't and i i totally agree that it is very important you have to it's important to talk to your neighbors it's important to engage with your local community to learn about what's going on um and not just in like the happy you know let's go have a barbecue or whatever or What's the what's the stereotypical Minnesota thing? Um, a potluck? I like a pot dish over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've I've gone I've gone to a whole bunch of those. I'm not a fan, but I guess I guess I've just lost my Minnesota cred there. Um, <laughs> but not not only like engage, not only engaging with your neighbors, but also engaging in like groups like Restore the Fourth, like the ACLU, like Care. We need volunteers. The ACLU needs volunteers. Care needs volunteers. And it, like if you're 
if you're listening to this podcast, you probably you're probably at a point where you already sort of agree with the notion that you shouldn't that we shouldn't be spied on as a society. Or you're an FBI agent. Or you're an FBI agent. Yeah. Hi. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm not opposed to spying happening. I just want it to be particularized to a yeah, individual it, with a warrant. Yeah. And yeah. there to be a legitimate reason. And afterwards, if you're not charged, that you're made aware of the fact that you exactly. were spied upon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, the, the police have always had the authority to search your, to search your house for evidence of, of wrongdoing for evidence of a crime if they know they know a crime has been convicted convicted and they've got testimony that says he was there and, and you know get a warrant. You, they know that you know that the guy's got a gun they're like all right let's go search his house they get you talk to a judge they get a warrant they go search the guy's house that's that's how the process is supposed to work yeah but that's not how it's working right now at least as far as surveillance technology is going so our organization restore the fourth we um we're doing a lot. We're, we're we got our hands in a lot of in a lot of pies at the moment, don't we? Yeah. I think feel like I mangled that particular idiom, but um. <laughs> I think it's fingers and pies. Is it fingers and pies? Well, that's how, how how deep in the pie we are. It's the whole hand at this point. Oh, yeah. I feel yeah. like how deep we've got we've got we've got multiple hands <laughs> and multiple different pies. Very deep in the pies. <laughs> yeah. um, our biggest our biggest thing that we're doing right now is we're working with um, Minneapolis City Council to push for a version of the ACLU C cops. Um, CCOPS draft um, uh, mo model model ordinance, I guess it's called. Yeah, we're working with the ACLU to push for a version of the CCOPS model ordinance, which is basically community control over police surveillance. Um, I feel like I've talked about this in, the, in our last draft podcast or whatever, but it's basically, we don't think that police departments should be able to buy, for example, facial recognition technology Without getting, a, without having a bunch of public meetings, without creating the impact report, and without getting the vote from the city council, mm -hmm. like we're not, you know, if it was up to me, we'd ban, we'd ban it. But like, there's, there, the police should have the ability to make their case to the public and to the city council to say, this is why we want the technology. These are the policies that are going to govern its use, and we're going to stick to those policies. And now you, the people, the people's representatives of this government, are get to say yes or no, yep. and. Having that process in place and having it apply to all surveillance technology and military technology too, because it's, that's equally dangerous for slightly different reasons, um, for many of the same reasons, but just you know, in addition to that. Having that process in place sort of gives us a blanket cover for whatever new technology DARPA dreams up. Yeah. So that there's always the democratic process and like annual audits of what's going exactly, on with yeah. these technologies too. and like you know reports that say you know we didn't actually use it because we didn't we don't think you know there wasn't a situation where it was actually useful so we stopped using it we're not going to spend money on it anymore we're not going to use it anymore yeah because the, the problem especially in Minneapolis is or in the whole state like we said before is that they would take these technology or get a grant from Homeland Security use it in secret and then be exposed later and at that point, it's too late for anybody to regulate it because yep. it's just commonplace. Yep. Um, I kind of forgot where I was going. There was a recent-ish story about that, but we can come back to that later. Yeah. Well, I do want to emphasize that not only by having this sort of ordinance passed in Minneapolis or potentially in the state of Minnesota or elsewhere, not only are we protecting just the average Joe citizen, but really I think it's a method by which we can protect the constitutional democratic republic itself. Yeah. Because if law enforcement is able to utilize surveillance technologies that politicians themselves don't know about, then those technologies could be used against the politicians in order to prevent their being robust oversight. And they have been used. And have been used. Yeah. Uh, a lesser-known NSA whistleblower by the name of Russ Tice uh, articulated that he had proof that people that were reporting for Dick Cheney, the vice president at the time, was uh, that the NSA uh, database uh, information was being utilized against people like U.S. Supreme Court justices yeah. and sitting members of Congress, including uh, Barack Obama, who at the time was a senator. And so if this technology is able to be used against politicians when they don't even know about the fact that this technology exists, Ugh. then this is a complete subversion 
of the principles that were laid out in the Constitution, and they need to be stopped in their tracks. I think it'd be good if you chatted about this uh, St. Louis shit, because that sounds yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up because I put my notes away. But yeah, this is a developing story. Persistent Surveillance Systems is a private company. I guess, I think they call themselves a nonprofit, but people people are aware of how drone surveillance works. And uh, this technology was built for the Iraq War where people were using roadside bombs and uh, they were having trouble tracking down where these people were coming from because it was okay. a insurgent guerrilla force. Um and so they came up with a system where they, at the time, networked a bunch of cell phone cameras together and used that on a drone to basically film everything happening within, like, at that time, I think it was 20-something square miles in, in a persistent mode. So the thing would just circle around, and then if it needed to refuel or land or whatever, they'd send up a different one. So they would have yeah. video from this huge square mile area that the analyst could then rewind and fast forward to see who was laying roadside bombs in certain places and follow that person back to their safe house. And obviously that is a genius method of well, countering that problem and it worked. And so like any good war technology, it eventually comes home and is used against Law the enforcement. Yeah, exactly. Like cell phone surveillance, uh, NSA surveillance, all that stuff is all initially, yeah, initially it's used for terrorism and then it becomes a drug war thing. And then it becomes just any sort of crime. And now, well, not even just any sort of crime. Let's just let's find out what those protesters are up to. Exactly, and that's basically one of my concerns with PSS, uh, persistent surveillance systems. Is they initially it was one aircraft or drone, and uh, they were using them in secret over Compton in LA and Baltimore, and they had to stop because people found out and they got upset, and so they stopped the operations, and now. To fix their PR problem, they're using activist anti-gun violence groups in St. Louis to wedge their way into city council. And now, St. Louis, <laughs> people must understand, has a really solid CCOPS bill, which we'll probably talk about later, which means that anytime the police or government want to use surveillance or military equipment, they have to have a public forum and there has to be an open debate in the city council or whatever to approve that use of funds and technology. Right, right. And so now in St. Louis, because there is a private donor that's willing to fund this operation, the mayor issued an executive order with this horrendous policy, like privacy policy, which says things like, we're going to cooperate with the feds and share this data. We're going to use biometrics, meaning facial recognition. Um, they're going to use it to protect public right-of-way and building security, which, like you said, butts up with the First Amendment, yeah. because if there's a protest blocking a highway or a street or an intersection, they, under this policy, have the authority to use the technology to identify the protesters. And so this is all being done in a citywide area. And I forgot to mention, the, the plan for PSS in St. Louis is to use three planes, basically simultaneously, and have them omnipresent. Sure. And so each one of the planes, the technology now covers a 32 square mile area. Okay. So times that by three, that's a huge geographical area where they're recording everything and everyone. So if you're out in public, the law usually says you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, right, which right. is shitty, but that's just the way it is now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that you can have a general warrant to cover an entire metropolitan area. It's and that's everybody at once. Constantly. Right. So the... And how they... Okay. Well, real quick, the additional thing that's even more frightening is that now it's not only wide area aerial surveillance. In their fusion center, which is, again, privately run... What's a, what's a fusion center? Uh, it's like an intelligence sharing place with a bunch of... A wall of computers and screens with analysts at keyboards. Right, right. And so they're feeding the, the, the spy plane intelligence into this place... And also networking CCTV cameras. Hmm. So, you know, from two or 3,000 feet, you look like a pixel on some of these things. You know, here and there it can be a better resolution, but they say it doesn't identify you. But then if you have a track, which that's what they call the suspects is tracks because they draw lines like MS Paint on a map to follow these people. If you go past a CCTV camera, then they patch that in. And then obviously that's an identifying and they can use facial recognition or whatever. Right. And then they know, and then they have this big recording of all oh, this person that did work to Yep. So 
what happens if you have somebody that has a legitimate fear of, you know, someone stalking them or whatever? You're parked in your driveway, you drive to an abortion clinic or a mosque or something. That data is going to exist. And I think their current policy is something like 30 or 60 days before it's deleted. And that I, I go, kind of going into a tangent here, but I don't think that they're doing that as a way to protect people's privacy. I think they're doing that because CYA. of the they're trying to cover their asses. That and they probably don't have the server space to cover <laughs> oh, years worth too. of thirty-two, of yeah, a square mile area. So the whole thing is completely messed up and undemocratic. Oh yeah, that's the other thing too. Like I don't have any solid information on this yet, but I've heard it from a couple different sources in Baltimore and St. Louis that PSS is talking about using a machine learning and algorithms to go through this data. Yeah. Because obviously, if you have that big of a geographical area, you're going to need some sort of help for, you know, whatever reason. Right, right. And that flies in the face of the fact that they're saying they're only using it for 911 calls. So it's like, if you're only using it for 911 calls, that's a pretty specific area. And I could see an argument being made that it limits the technology. But then what the hell is the algorithm and the AI doing? Yeah. Like, how does that not, help you follow someone with your eyes? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, and you're not going to be able to... There aren't enough 911 calls to, <laughs> to actually good to, to get enough data points to train an algorithm. Yeah. You need a lot more data points than that to, to adequate... I mean, I might, be, I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure you need a lot more data points than the amount of 911 calls you get to... Hopefully. To, to, to adequately train an artificial intelligence. Yeah, because we're trying to do the same thing up here, get a CCOPS bill into Minneapolis. Right, right, and that's and what and it has been sort of frustrating doing the research on where it's been implemented and seeing where it succeeded and where and how it succeeded and how it's failed. Mm -hmm. And like, I really think it's important that we take that information and like, this is the default template that we're gonna be working off of. But here's a bunch of additional stuff that we want in there mm -hmm. because we know that you know this surveillance technology, it's really powerful and police and the federalities really want to use it and they're going to look for you know they're going to look for every loophole they can find to try and use it thanks for listening to right to be secure just a note in future episodes we will likely be in the field at places such as the minnesota legislature city halls around the state and country and elsewhere you'll also hear interviews how to's that will help you with digital security documentary series, and much more. Follow us on Twitter, at RT4MN. Visit RestoreTheFourth.com for the national Restore the Fourth movement, and RT4.MN for the local branch. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.
W-E-R-E